I'm Ebony K. Williams, your attorney at law and host. Welcome to Holding Court, where we analyze the very latest legal headlines everybody's already talking about. We dig into how the courts impact the culture. We break it all down for you, and we go straight from gavel to your news feed. And I promise you this, y'all, every single week, we're going to keep it a buck, keep it 100. Right, Dustin Ross? That's right, Ebony. Let's go ahead and hold court. Let's do it. All right, welcome to Holding Court. Dustin Ross, um, I got to start with all things Meghan Markle and Auntie yes. O and this prolific interview. It, yes. I, I was captivated and compelled the whole damn time. How about you? Well, first of all, the whole world went on pause because we've been waiting to hear firsthand what Megan had to say and how they were treating her across the pond. And she did not disappoint. She literally opened the clip. She let the <laughs> chopper sing. She It was a clean sweep. She left no stone unturned. I mean, like, what more can you ask for? And shout out to her for being brave yeah. because she did that interview while pregnant. Yes, um, and amidst hella scrutiny. So that was an incredible, incredible watch that's going to go down archive for years to come. Yeah. That was huge. It, it was massive. You're right. The world stopped. And listen, I'm old enough to remember when the late great Princess Diana sat down with mm-hmm. Andrew Morton for her tell-all, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that was some 30 years ago plus. And now to see Megan essentially open that shit wide up wide open as well, uh, just like her predecessor, Princess Diana, the princess for the people, might I add, did. Mm-hmm. I love to see it, Dustin, because those, uh, the monarchy and those kinds of institutions, uh, the firm, we've seen it with the American government. <laughs> Hello. Yes. Um, yes you know, yes. those types of institutions thrive in secrecy. They thrive in secrecy and they, they, they thrive in internalized trauma and they bet on the victims of their brutality, and that's exactly what it is, is a form of brutality, uh, to not say shit mm-hmm. and to suffer in pain. And what's the saying? Don't don't complain, don't explain. And I love that that Meghan Markle, just like Princess Diana said, fuck that shit. Um, uh, this is some fucked up shit going on up in here. And just like Diana said, you know, it's three people in this marriage. Yep, <laughs> Me, yep. y'all. You remember that? Yeah. Like, yep, like yep. it was so profound, right? Yep. Just, just so y'all know what I'm dealing with over here is is me, Charles, and Camilla's ass up in this marriage. Yeah, and it's a exactly. problem. Megan put the world on notice. Yeah, Her she dropped the bombs, baby. She, listen, she let everybody know they were fucking concerned about the complexion of my son. Yes. What about that, Ebony? Right? Basically telling her that they that they wanted to know. Look, is the baby gonna come out black or not? Listen. And how are we gonna handle it if he does? I noticed that part too. She said, "What would mm-hmm. they do if so?" Yeah. Like what the hell? Well, it's what the hell, but it's also so common, right? Yeah, like, true, of course, true, true. and like not for nothing. Like, I'm not about to even sit up here and pretend like uh, in 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 our own families deep down south. And I and I think this is true everywhere. I can just only speak from my experience at the south. That's always a conversation. I'm telling you, every time a child is born, for the most part, it's a look at the back of their ears so you can right. project. Right, um, right. How you know what I'm talking? Yes, exactly. look at the ears. Yes, 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 baby. yes. You know, and yes. so. We get that, and it's so sad, really. And I'm glad we're having this conversation now, Dustin, because we're mm-hmm. really acknowledging and confronting how white, white supremacy, rather, has shown up and been in doctrine in our own spaces, yeah, in our sure. own homes, you know, because that's exactly where we get that shit from, uh, you know. And so I think for Megan to to talk about it on that platform in that way. I think serves as a gut check for all of us within the culture to reject and repudiate that type of bullshit. You know, we're yeah, not what we're not sure. gonna do is have a sweet little innocent baby that didn't ask to be here, for be sure. scrutinized before it's even born around the complexion of their melanin. Yeah, yeah. And how that would damage the the family and the brand essentially. This is mm-hmm. this is this is eye-opening. Again, these are not things that are shocking or, or new in, in concept to us as Black people. Right. But to see it displayed for the world to see, especially on this level, in connection to something as large an impact as the fucking royal family, mm-hmm. this is huge. And Megan did not get... She didn't play with them. No. She rolled them like some dice. And mm-hmm. I love to see it. That was great. I love that mm-hmm. Harry mm-hmm. was also mm-hmm. very forthcoming. You yes, know? he was. He and was holding her hand the whole damn time. Like, I'm with her. 
<laughs> Listen, okay. where she goes, I follow. That's period. what it was. Full stop. Speaking of, uh, you know, we're going to have Dr. Joy coming to the show later. Yes, and yes. I can't wait. I know we both love it. We're going to be fighting over uh, Dr. Joy later in yes, the show. <laughs> because, um, but we're going to talk to her about generational trauma, Dustin. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I feel like when I was watching Harry last night, I was seeing the 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 vicarious trauma that he experienced from the loss, the killing of his own mother um, due in large part to the toxicity of that Royal family. And he was saying, he said it flat out. I do do not Mm -hmm. want history to repeat itself, period. So I am going to do as a husband and father, what I need to do to protect my family. Period. And I thought, frankly, it was a little bit of uh, justifiable shade to his own daddy. Uh, That's exactly what it was. mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to do what you didn't do. What you didn't do. Yeah. For the reasons that we know you didn't do it for. Mm. And so there, there's so many layers to this conversation. As we all know, mm-hmm. the royal family is a is a very um, nuanced entity. Mm-hmm. And um, to put it mildly, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of moving parts there. So the addition of the black angle to right. now be the thing that has caused you know put a wedge in in the the the, the secrecy. You know, yes. I mean, that's been going on for so long. This is just great. And leave it to black people. We always. You know, we always make we'll blow some flash. shit up. Yes, yeah, yes, you know, will. we'll we'll blow some shit up, and I I, yes, I live for it. Um, speaking of blowing it up, Dustin, uh, do you think we'll ever see Meghan and or Harry at at the palace again, or is that is is the bridge burned to completion? The bridge is not burned to completion because there's still value in mm. Harry and there in Meghan being attached to the royal family. Mm-hmm. There's still a value there. There's still some things that they will basically need him for in the future. And mm-hmm. so I definitely don't think we've seen the end of this. In fact, I think that Meghan and Harry will get the last laugh mm-hmm. and be be uh, there will be a, a display made made of them being welcomed back into the to mm-hmm. the, the royal family at some point. You mm-hmm. know. But they they will end up with the that. upper hand in this, yeah. They made yeah. it was risky, but it was. I think it was worth it. In the Man, end. listen, Megan and Harry out here playing chess. Yeah, <laughs> while everybody else playing anymore. checkers. Yeah, they, they ain't even playing checkers. They playing Connect Four. Megan and Harry on the chessboard. They okay. on the chessboard, honey, yeah. taking queens. That's right, <laughs> baby. That literally, <laughs> literally, literally. I love it. And also, congratulations uh, to the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, who are their baby girl. Yeah, uh, who will be due this summer. I hope she comes out black. I hope she come out looking blackity black black. Me too. Because we know that's always a possibility. People are like, well, what did they expect Archie to look like? He's only one fourth black. Shit. Jeans will reach on your ass. Won't they? Won't they so quick? And I love it. Uh, So so now we're going to go to our docket and we got a lot to get into. Some breaking news coming out of the Derek Chauvin trial. We're going to get to that Mm -hmm. in a minute. And I want to be clear. It's the Derek Chauvin is on trial, not Mm -hmm. brother George Floyd. We're going to get to that in a minute. But first up, Dustin, I went to uh, this story caught my eye and I really wanted to talk to you about it because of the context of the cultural aspect of the N word. So this happened down in Tampa, Florida. And, you know, Florida always going to do what? Florida, Florida, right? Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Uh, a brother by the name of Delvin White, black uh, cop who was working as a school resource officer, uh, he got his pink slip for what they call violations of policy that prohibit discriminatory conduct. Simply put, he was using the N word while he was arresting some young black teens. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, this happened back in November of 2020. He's on body cam recording. You can hear it. Uh, and see some of it where he's calling a group of young black teens ghetto in words mm-hmm. while talking both to his friend and then later on uh, talking to his wife on the phone all while he was making an arrest for trespassing. We'll get into kind of the legalities <sighs> of it. Uh, should he have been fired? Should he have not been fired? Let me let's just start there. Do, do you think the man should have been fired based no. on? No. OK, no. Tell me why. First of all, we're talking about a police force in Tampa, Florida. You can't <laughs> right. tell me that this black Worse man has to happen. Only, yeah, right, okay. right, this, right. This right. is not the the case scenario of the n word being used within that facility that mm-hmm. requires this much attention. So no, I don't think he should have been fired. So I agree with you. He shouldn't have been fired. I think it's a disproportionate action. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a way far reach. Um, I think he should have been reprimanded. I'll get to that in a minute. Why? Yeah. Uh, but I don't think he should have been fired because uh, you ain't no way in the world I'm believing that's the worst shit a Tampa no, police officer exactly. has done. Uh, not after they, uh, back in uh, 
April, just last spring of 2020, put 125 fucking bullets into a car, killing a black man. Uh, And prosecutors, guess what? They didn't even press no charges. So I don't want to hear that shit. Um, But, but I do think it's worth pausing for, for, for the culture to recognize, don't get too fucking comfortable with your own people. That's okay, right. because, you know, and, and I know the N word is a controversial thing. Some people use it in the c- culture. Some people don't. This is my take. And I'm going to be very clear, Dustin. I don't use the word for specific reason. Mm-hmm. But what I will never do, because it's not my place, is mm-hmm. police a fellow black person's right or choice to use it. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That is wholly inappropriate. The problem with uh, the N-word to me is it, it is born, you know, this is shit you, we all know, born of such brute uh, violence and, and horror against our people. I just don't want to give it life, right? Yeah, like in any I capacity, totally that is me. And, 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 I, and I'll use the analogy of our Jewish brothers and sisters and the K-word. You're listening to Holding Court, my jurors, and you are younger than the age of 30. You when I say the know. K word, you probably don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah. But you better ask the estate of Michael Jackson because okay. he had okay, he had a song they don't really they care, don't about, care us. about us. Yeah. Listen, you already know the T. <laughs> you already know the T, D Ross. And in it, he talks about uh Jew me, Sue me, da 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 black and white me, mm-hmm. something, something. K word mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Baby. Mm-hmm. The Anti-Defamation League and the Jewish community said, not on our watch, Michael Joe Jackson. They didn't play with him. At all. Michael fucking Jackson had to take that shit right on out the song. Yeah. Sony had to redistribute all the material. And that that word in that song never saw the light of fucking day. Period. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a model to say what can happen in a generation where you are extremely disciplined about the visibility of the word to now Jews don't even have that to contend with. You know what I mean? There's never a debate in the Jewish community about who can say it, who can't say it, because motherfuckers don't even know what it is anymore. And I would love to see that replicated for us uh, because sadly, I can appreciate the argument, um, of course, made by many in hip hop and Jay-Z, whatever, that, you know, we can redefine it and it can be a term of endearment. But here's the problem. It, it can be in term of endearment, but you can't pick and choose how you mean it in a particular time. Uh, this officer here, this this is his quote. The N-word is commonly used in today's society as a means of shared culture and experiences among the African-American community. Get the fuck out of here, Officer right. uh, White, because here's the problem. You, that was his lawyer speaking for him, you weren't trying to be endearing and 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 collective when you call this group that you were arresting ghetto in words right you see what i'm saying dustin right. that's the problem like you know if, if it's really just my end my end my end we dapping up we cool it's all love okay but then we want to we want to switch it and also use it in a nasty ass vile derogatory way against our own people and i think when you do that it's a problem see we we can't always suss out each other's own intention Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, let's just let's just consider what would happen if we had a more more solidarity around where we want that word to be in our culture. You know, we we kind of have said historically, D, that it's okay for us to use the word. But the the truth is, it's actually not always okay for us to use the word even with each other, because I had to get my may she rest in peace, my good aunt Sherry together. Mm -hmm. I remember being about 13 Mm -hmm. and she was like, come here, little in. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just read <laughs> I just read the narrative of Frederick Douglass <laughs> on Sherry. Okay. And um, you're not going to be able to call me that no more. Okay. I don't know who you're talking to, but uh, my name is Ebony. Yeah. And, um, and she, she laughed. and she, but, but not not for nothing. She respected my request. That's right. And she never yeah. referred to me as that again. I was like, there's many things you can call me, but that's not one of them. Uh, and that's how I, I function to this day. Um, so I I don't know who you play with your mama. Don't play with me. I'm not your N word, but no, I don't think this brother should have been fired. That's a step too far. Tampa. Y'all got bigger fish to fry. Moving on. (laughs) Derek Chauvin, uh, the white man that absolutely killed on tape, uh, Mm -hmm. the, the late great, uh, brother George Floyd. Uh, he killed him. We don't know if he's considered a murderer yet. That's what this trial is for. Right. We said, uh, last week, Dustin, we're going to cover this thing gavel to gavel and we will. Yes. Now, this trial is supposed to be starting Monday of this week. We know for a fact it will not. It is going to be delayed at least by a day, probably more. Let me tell you why. Okay. 
Okay, so remember last week we were discussing on the docket this notion of whether or not we know Derek Chauvin is facing charges of second degree murder. We know that. We know he's facing charges of second degree manslaughter. We know that. This issue of third degree murder is an outstanding question. Now, originally he was charged with it. It was then dismissed. So uh, uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison could up the charge to second degree. We love to see it. But now I get this. Keith Ellison is saying and his prosecutor's office is saying we want all the options. So we want to put that third degree murder charge back in play so that if the jury doesn't feel they have enough to convict of the higher second degree, at least we can get a conviction of the third degree. Mm -hmm. This is where it gets a little complicated, Dustin. Let me slow down. So far, the trial judge. okay, that's the person sitting in judgment of this actual trial has refused to do that. The trial judge has refused to allow for that third degree murder charge to be reinstated. Okay. Just last week, breaking news, the Court of Appeals, Minnesota Court of Appeals, unanimously is three judges on that bench, on the appeals court. All Mm -hmm. three of them said the lower court judge has to reconsider whether or not to add that third degree charge. And the reason is this. There's a precedent changing case. Uh, where in which uh, a law enforcement officer named Mohammed Noor, man of color, obviously, police officer, shot and killed a white Australian woman on duty. That officer was charged and convicted of third degree murder. Let me mm. explain something about third degree murder because a lot of people don't know what that is. Okay. Historically, in this jurisdiction, Minnesota, third degree murder has been used to describe an act that is done in depraved mind, that is dangerous to a group rather than one person. The example they often cite, Dustin, is uh, let's say a suspect fires into a gun, uh, excuse me, into a crowd of people with a gun randomly. Okay, so that's that's jeopardizing the life of many. Mm -hmm. Uh, They also historically in Minnesota have charged uh, someone that drives a car into a crowd. You know, you're a threat to a collective. They consider that third degree. That makes sense. A drug dealer uh, distributing narcotics and and opioids to uh, the community. Someone dies, they'll charge that individual with third degree murder. But this case I just talked to you about where this um, Muslim law enforcement officer, police officer killed this white woman. That's just one person. And they convicted him of third degree murder. So basically Mm. the appeals court is saying that now there is precedent that third degree murder, formerly thought to only apply to collective uh, threats, can now be applied to individual threats. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's, it's, it's a shift in the application of third degree murder, saying that it can apply when you kill one person and your intention is dangerous to just the one person. So because of that, the appell- appellate court is saying to this trial judge for the Chauvin case, reconsider. That's why we don't see jury selection starting today. Mm. <sighs> it's well, a lot. It's I, a lot. Yeah. It's, it's, it just, you know what, before we even get to breaking this all the way down, I, all the way down, rather, I just want to say it just feels impossible to get any sort of justice, mm-hmm. any sort of fucking, any sort of, of, of ray of, of hope, anything thing that makes us feel like we may see this thing work out at least in the direction of the right way. Right. I just feel like they snatch it out of our hand every time we even get close to it. I, I just. Yeah. It's, 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 it sucks. But then, you know, I do want to say this because I think a lot of people feel exactly how you feel, Dustin. They woke up this morning. Like, they was God, ready for damn, justice. You know? Yeah. They, yeah. They ready for justice to finally start. Right. Yeah. Like what, what, what could be justice. Right. Cause we never know, but, but it, what it could be. And then it's like, damn, it's not starting today. Might not start tomorrow. Shit. Is this motherfucker ever going to go to trial? Really? I get it. I get it. I get it. But I do want to give you this, right? We do need them to get this shit right though, Dustin, right? We need them to get it all the way correct because if indeed they move forward and they don't have these little details, right? Around this third degree, second degree, if that shit is not pristine, the whole shit will get overturned. I'm gonna give yeah. you. I'm gonna give you an exact example of how that how that could go down, and this is really scary to me as an attorney. Okay. Let's say the trial judge does allow for the third degree murder. That's what the prosecutors want. All good. Fast forward. Let's say this jury convicts Derek Chauvin of the third degree murder charge. Okay. Watch this though. If the Minnesota Supreme Court, so again, it's trial court lowest level, appellate court mid level. Minnesota Supreme Court, highest state court level. If Mm -hmm. the Minnesota Supreme Court 
goes back to that case I, I referenced you, the precedent setting case, the Muslim cop killing the white woman. He was convicted of third degree. Minnesota Supreme Court could overturn that ruling. That mm. case is, if that happens, <laughs> watch this. Derek Chauvin's conviction of third degree murder, if that's what he's convicted of, is also overturned. And oh, prosecutors man. will not be able to retry him. Double jeopardy sets in. Oh, man. So you see what I mean now? See how high the stakes are? So they yes. got to get this shit right. And I know it's frustrating as hell that it's a delay. But I, I personally, legally, I'd rather them delay this shit and get it right than rush to a process man, and get it wrong. Yeah. 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 Does that, okay. well, that, does that make some more sense? sense? Yeah. Okay. And that feels better. That okay. feels better having that information. It got feels it. better when we get the information we got earlier. So, yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I know it sucks, but I, I, I needed them to uh, get this shit right, Dustin, because if this yeah. motherfucker gets convicted of a third degree and then it's overturned and, and they can't try him again. Then what? You then know. what? Then what? Okay. Speaking of then what? Now, I didn't really know this. I mean, I guess I'd heard this, but it still shocks me every time I read it, Dustin. And I, know we, I think we talked about it on the show before, but still, it's worth repeating. Mm-hmm. Do you know that Derek Chauvin almost pled guilty to third degree murder uh, off jump, like days after George, like right after George Floyd died? They had already put together a plea deal for him to plead guilty to third degree murder. He would go to prison for over 10 years. He was ready to do it. But then the plea deal was rejected by your homeboy, William Barr, former attorney general under Bush number one and fucking Trump, okay? Because he claimed, oh, I want to let the local prosecutor, attorney general Keith Ellison, make a decision as to how he wants to go forward. I think that's interesting. Let me ask you this. I don't normally like to Monday morning quarterback decisions like this. Um, Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in this case, I'm curious, Dustin, do you, would you have preferred to just see him go ahead and plead out early on to third degree murder and be done with it? Part of me says yes, but then I also feel like if he did plead at and and, and it did go that way, mm-hmm. what I have felt like that was sufficient. What right. I have felt like there should have been some more, you know, um, mm-hmm. harder charges that were issued. So although that would have felt good to see something done and to mm-hmm. kind of have some sort of closure, I guess, Mm -hmm. I still feel like I would be left feeling as if it wasn't done right. So I kind of feel like maybe we're in a better position now. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there's no right or wrong. Of course. I think, I think my heart space agrees Mm -hmm. with everything you just said, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but my head space, knowing what I know about, These motherfuckers, yes, yes. And just frankly, the raw data, Dustin, that tells me it is such a legal rarity that a law enforcement officer wears a conviction ever, least alone. Don't forget the the, the precedent making case I talked about earlier, uh, uh, white victim, police officer of color. Though The the data shows that 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 conviction can happen. It is extremely rare for a white officer to be convicted of the wrongful killing of a black victim. Yeah. And because of that, I would probably venture to say I might prefer to have one in the hand and two in the bushes. I understand. And then you when know? you when you when you lay it out like that, it makes perfect sense. Of course I see that too. Um but but here's the situation. Once they figure out how this third degree murder charge is going to enter this, the, this trial or whether or not it does, then we will move to a phase of the trial, the beginning called voir dire. Okay. And that's mm-hmm. a term. I want to just tell people what it means. Okay. Voir dire, V-O-I-R-D-I-R-E. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jury selection. That's exactly what the hell it is. Jury selection. And I'm going to tell you this, Dustin, when this shit starts, I'm going to be watching it like a hawk. We're going to be reporting straight to the jurors because when I first started practicing, D, uh, uh, one of my mentor attorneys told me most trials are won and lost mm-hmm. at jury selection, mm-hmm. period, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. If you don't get that motherfucking voir dire right, meaning mm-hmm. if you don't have the correct jurors in place. You can forget it. Forget that shit. All that opening and closing arguments and all them witnesses and shit, it don't Means mean nothing. nothing, yeah. Right. So, Jesus, I want to just go over with you uh, some of the questions that went out on the juror survey. So, this is customary, right? So, before you um, even show up for jury duty, these people uh, in the the pool, the the jury pool in Minnesota, they've been given these 
questionnaires and it's got about 14 questions on it precisely. And they ask them things like this. Circle the choice that reflects your honest opinion. One through four, agree to disagree. Discrimination is not as bad as the media makes it out to be. Hmm. Police in my community make me feel safe. Hmm. <laughs> I don't trust the police. Mm-hmm. Uh, black people and white people get the same treatment by police in this country. Hmm. You get the vibes, <laughs> right? So already... <laughs> You gotta laugh. You gotta, you gotta laugh. laugh. Right? Already, they're trying to see where these jurors' heads are, right? Um, and this is why. When you talk about Vordier, this is what they're trying to decide. Each uh, prosecutor side, defense side, they get a certain number of strikes, okay? It's two different kinds of strikes. Somebody could be um, stricken for cause, okay? And that's the, the, the judge ultimately decides, you know, what's applicable. Mm-hmm. You're stricken from jury duty for cause when you just say flat out, I cannot uh, be truthful, honest, or fair. I just can't do it. Uh, I, the cops hemmed me up one time when I was 17. I fuck them the hell, and I will not be fair at all. That's somebody that's stricken for cause. Get it? Okay. Mm. The other is when you are struck from jury duty for no stated cause. It's called a preemptory strike. Okay. The defense gets 15, meaning they can just say for no explanation, uh, your honor, we move to strike juror number seven and we don't know why, but they choose to strike. Now the caveat here is it cannot be for race or gender or any kind of discrimination like that. Okay. It's a Supreme court president of co- because of course, actually your honor, we were looking for an all white jury on this one. <laughs> so, you know, like the fuck, so they, so right. <laughs> so these N words got to go. Right, 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 right. So number seven, <laughs> two, 12 and 13, you know take their black asses out here. Black. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Number 12, <laughs> number seven. <they> are. <laughs> oh, I can't do it with you today, Dustin. Exactly. Exactly. So um, defense gets 15 of those preemptory, no explanation strikes and the prosecutor gets nine. Okay. Okay. So that's how it's going down. It sucks. It sucks. But I'll I'll rather wait for them motherfuckers to get it right than to rush and get it wrong. I agree. Um, all right. Now, listen, with that, Dustin, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to pay some bills for the good folks. But y'all, we got much more holding court after this. Okay, y'all, welcome back to Holding Court. All right, here's some here's some good news, Dustin. Uh, some good news on our docket. Happy to report that the prosecutors yes. in the case of, uh, you remember uh, sister, may she rest in peace, Brianna Taylor. Remember her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker? Yes, yes. Remember they was trying to okey-doke that brother and, and charge bullshit. him and all trumped that shit? charges, literally. Literally. <laughs> you got that right. Some yeah. trumped up charges. That man, uh, you know, had a legally owned firearm in his own domicile in his castle right mm-hmm, castle doctrine mm-hmm. castle and he doctrine. was and he was using it to protect his queen and his home and yeah he shot somebody in the leg because they busted in unannounced with a no-knock badass warrant and they tried to t- tried to arrest that brother that's right happy to report that not only were those charges dismissed the prosecutors have moved successfully to permanently dismiss any and all charges against brianna's boyfriend Kenneth Walker. That means that, that, yes, they will not be able to present any charges and related to that shooting ever, ever, ever again. Permanently dismissed. He is free on these issues. And and thank God for it. Well, that's wonderful news. Um, They say you're not supposed to congratulate a toddler for making their bed, but we're going to clap a couple. We're going to give a a couple Mm -hmm. hand claps this this, uh, episode Mm -hmm. for them because finally, I mean, you know, you just... I don't know. I think about myself and I think about what I like for people to think about when they think about me. And I yeah. can't, I just can't imagine being involved in this case, involved in these proceedings, mm-hmm. being a, a decision maker, being someone of influence in this situation and making the wrong decision. So shout out to whoever said enough's enough. And we're not going to move forward with any charges that don't belong against this man. You know, shout out to whoever said finally, okay, we're not going to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, peace to, of course, Brother Kenneth Walker. I'm glad that's just Please. one thing he doesn't have to worry about. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and that's what his lawyer said. This brother is coming off the worst year of his life. He lost his girlfriend. He you know, had to, to deal with the trauma and scrutiny of, of criminal charges, wrongful criminal charges. So to know that he'll never have to go to court for this bullshit again. Yep. Thank yep. God. Thank, Thank God. God. 
Also thanking God for the the incredible brilliance of Brother Lakeith Stanfield. Again, you know, mm-hmm. I know we had a whole deep dive last week on the work uh, of both Daniel Kaluuya and uh, Lakeith Stanfield and the rest yes. of the cast, of course, in Judas and the Black Messiah. But what I love is that Lakeith is being very vulnerable and transparent, Dustin, mm-hmm. in the fact that he did this recent uh, interview with Level where Lakeith talked about how difficult it really was for him to separate uh, his piece of shit character, Bill O'Neill, the black FBI informant that ultimately led to the assassination of Chairman Fred Hampton. Lakeith was talking about how it was difficult for him to separate that part and that role and himself in that role from his own actual identity. You know, he was that invested in the, in the work. You know, yeah. as any brilliant actor and, and creative would be, and, and we demand that of our, our, our artists, right? Yes, but, but, but what happens to their spirit when they go there? And Lakeith was basically like, I, I, was, I was really messed up behind it, and I had to go to therapy. And only through therapy was he able to really, uh, you know, be able to really take care of himself in the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's so important, Dustin, you know, that when we talk about the work that we do as black creatives and black activists and just black people in the business of supporting, helping and liberating our people. Yeah. It is a, it is a, a high toll that we do pay of personal peace. For sure. Personal peace. Daily. Daily. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, shout out to him, props to him for being, um, so outspoken about this and actually taking the uh, lead in his own uh, protection of his mental health, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And getting using his resources yeah. um, and being vocal about it, being essentially the poster child for this. It's a damn shame, but it's still a rarity for black men to be uh, forthcoming and, and upfront about needing mental help, seeking totally. mental help, using those resources and, and, and destigmatizing that. So, totally. It's so important. And that's why yeah. I know Charlemagne, um, you know, has been really vocal about his Hell work for yeah. black men and mental health. Shout out to Charlemagne the God on that. Yes. Um, you know, Taraji P. Henson with um, mm-hmm. the foundation she has um, in her father's name, all about mental health treatment and um, her Facebook live show, which is about the same. Uh, yeah. Shout out to Wale. Wale has yes. done incredible work in the space of uh, black men in particular uh, with mental health treatment, uh, Chance the Rapper, yeah. uh, you know, so thankfully, yeah. you know, Dustin, we we do have these voices, but, but you know, here at Holden Court, we want to amplify um, all those voices. And, and speaking of amplification, uh, when we come back from the next break, uh, the queen herself, Dr. Joy, is going to yes. join Holden Court and she's going to help us, you know, get some real tips and practical solutions as to how we can, as black people, protect our peace as we go about the work of liberating our people. We got much yes. more Holden Court after this. Welcome back to Holding Court. Now, as promised, uh, Dustin and I are fighting for who loves her more. <laughs> we right. are both massive Dr. Joy fans here at That's Holding right. Court. Um, this has been putting it down. I can honestly say to y'all, I was not a massive podcast uh, person, mm-hmm. but one of the first podcasts, Dustin, that I really started getting into on a weekly basis, Dr. Mm-hmm. Joy. Yeah. That's right. Y'all, we're so excited. Dr. Joy Harden Bradford is here with us today. She's a licensed psychologist. She's a renowned speaker and, of course, host of this her insanely popular, so damn good podcast, Therapy for Black Girls. Yes. yes say that. Um, on her show, she really focuses on mental health topics, but she really mm-hmm. does something that's so important, right, D, making them accessible for Black folk. Um, and black women in particular. And she really does a fantastic job of using kind of like pop culture aspects. Shout out to that Insecure series on her show, right? It was lit. Um, Yeah, so that we can really better understand how to avail ourselves to the benefits of therapy and mental health treatment. Uh, Dr. Joy, welcome to the show. Thank y'all so much for having me. No, we appreciate you, sis. So right before um, we brought you on, we were talking about how Lakeith Stanfield, right, uh, the brilliant uh, actor who just had a, you know, star making turn in Mm -hmm. Judas and the Black Messiah, where he plays um, FBI informant and uh, just uh, betrayer of the culture, uh, Bill O'Neill, right? Right. Uh, And and just, you know... uh, it's a tour de France performance, but it's deep. You know, Lakeith has to embody in this role and he does it brilliantly. Um, a real piece of shit, a real yeah. trifling motherfucker, somebody who, uh, but for his cooperation with the FBI, 
uh, we might not have had the assassination of Brother Fred Hampton, at least not in that way. In this recent interview with Level, Lakeith talks about how difficult it was to film such a, uh, you know, uh, visceral and... uh, complicated and and problematic role that he actually ended up having to go to therapy, Dr. Joy. Um, and for him, that was important. Look, he, here's the direct quote, Dr. Joy. He says, when we filmed me having to poison Fred Hampton, it was a really tough day. I was thinking about my own brother, uh, just in a whole different place all day on set, crying that sense of loss, knowing the violence of all that. It really informed everything for me. There was no distinction between reality And what I was experiencing in the moment, most of the takes in that scene, I was actually bawling. I had to tone it back. And that's that's from Lakeith's own mouth. And so because of that, Dr. Joy, he ended up, you know, going to therapy and talking about how much it helped him be able to cope with the role itself and the aftermath, the trauma that he experienced just by playing the role. So, you know, and it's so deep. And I'm, I'm so happy that Lakeith was vulnerable and honest about it. Mm-hmm. Because one thing I want to just start the conversation with Dr. Joyce, the fact that we as a culture and particularly around our black men, right, uh, have so much stigma around availing oneself to therapy. So can you just kind of give us your take on for people that are are hesitant, um, who maybe have grown up in, in, in households that say therapy is for white folks or it's some bullshit or you have to be crazy to to need the the benefits of a therapist. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, so so much powerful information. I actually hadn't read that uh, story, so I'm a, mm. I appreciate mm. you sharing that. Mm-hmm. And I have heard similar stories, right? I mean, I think even Michael B. Jordan talked about something similar related to playing Killmonger in the Black Panther, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that this is something for people who are in these creative spaces where they have to transform themselves. You know, we know really good actors. It is very difficult to tell whether it's themselves or the character, right? Yes. That's why Listen. we love them so much or hate them so much, right? That Uga. That, that Uta Hagen method is for real. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they really become to embody these characters. And so I'm not surprised at all. And I'm really glad that he shared that and that they are taking care of themselves in that way. But you're right. You know, it is not historically something that has been talked about a lot in our communities. We likely didn't grow up with people um, talking about going to a therapy. Now, we likely have heard people say like, oh, my nerves are bad. Right. Yes. Or, you know, those kinds of things. But we, yeah. we didn't until recently, I think, have language for what that means. And so, you know, it has not always been very popular or actually um, very advantageous for us to go to therapy. You know, I think we have Mm. to be honest about the ways that the mental health system has really demonized and um, been very critical and harmful to Black people. So it it hasn't always been a very welcoming space for Black people to visit. But Mm -hmm. I do think we are seeing with these kinds of conversations, breaking down that stigma, really helping people to understand how it can be beneficial for you to get some support from somebody outside of your you know, your family or your circle. Indeed. And I know I go to therapy weekly and it's been something I've done on and off since undergrad. And that's, you know, it's just been a necessary part of my experience. And something else we wanted to talk to you about, Dr. Joy, is in addition to the creatives that have to embody, um, you know, the trauma of these roles, there's also just the real life day-to-day work of being a black person, of, of mm. those the, those of us, and I say that inclusive of all of us in this conversation, that in our in our own ways are doing the work to help liberate our people. Um, yeah. And and when you do that work uh, of the culture and and activism in its own form, it is by its own definition traumatic. It truly yeah. is. And I know for me, Doctor Joy, when my my years at Fox News in particular. Um, it just got really dark at some point. I'll just say it like that. It got extremely dark, extremely heavy. That's not a, you know, crying your Cheerios for me because I knew the work I was signing up to do. Right. And and I've spoken very publicly about this y'all, you know, I didn't go to Fox news to be comfortable. I went there to disrupt and that I did, but that disruption, it absolutely hit me to its core. You know, at some point it was a very lonely experience and I would talk to my therapist and she would say to me, y'all, she said, Ebony, at what point, are you representing your people? And at what point are you a part of your people? Like you do such work to be a, a, a perfect and ideal representative of the black community. I don't think you're allowing yourself to have some grace and just find comfort being a member 
of your community. And I, I, I just am curious, Dr. Joy, how often you see that in your work, that people are, are you know, they're on their job, uh, they're showing up, maybe they're dealing with code switching or just all, again, all of the just weight that we carry as Black folk in this society. And then we don't really acknowledge the fact that just doing the, doing that is its own trauma. And how do we avail ourselves to help around that and support? Mm-hmm. I mean, my goodness, you know, I, I don't think that there are many people who would argue about how toxic and unhealthy and damaging many workspaces are. Mm-hmm. And when you think about, you know, especially pre-pandemic, how many hours we were spending in the workplace and with our coworkers, you can only imagine like the compound impact of a place that's toxic for you and what that can do to your mental health, right? So people end up questioning themselves. It can be incredibly isolating and lonely, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, people get very paranoid and rightfully so, because sometimes you're not sure who to trust and whether people, you know, honestly have your back or if they're trying to like pitch you against one another. Like there are just so many mental health concerns that can come from working in a a workspace that is not affirming and welcoming of you. And Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of us, you know, I think a lot of people that I do see in therapy come to me with some form of like workplace issue, right? I mean, Mm. and we know that there are different personalities. And so anytime you're bringing together a group of people, there's going to be something. But I think for Black people in particular, you know, just the history of racism and all of the other isms presents a very particular kind of, it, it shows up in a very particular kind of way that then causes just havoc in many other areas of our lives. And so the need to have supportive spaces where you can talk with people and they really understand you, right? Like there's no questioning of whether what you say happened did actually happen in that way. Places that can really affirm you and give you a space to kind of just be yourself and take those masks off Mm -hmm. are really, really important. And therapy can be one of those spaces. Indeed. And I enjoyed that in Brother Charlemagne's book, Shook Ones, right? And Mm -hmm. that was really his ode to the Black community and our relationship with mental health and therapy. And he has a whole chapter in there, y'all, about the trauma of Blackness, right? Like, we're not crazy. We're not deranged. It is a real thing to just acknowledge um, the the trauma that comes along with being a conscious Black person in this society, right? And then when you when you amplify what you just talked about, Dr. Joy, which is pretty much all of us when we show up in, in our various workplaces have to navigate these things, but then let's talk about the Black folk that are the activists among us, right? They show up in this space of doing social justice work in their day-to-day. It's compounded, you know? Mm-hmm. So there, there's this quote that really stood out to me. This is from a Celeste, the therapist podcast, which is also excellent. She says, because activists are so consumed with how everybody else is feeling, right? They're genuinely concerned with that and they really want to help. They can lose themselves in the process. And to me, that reflected my own experience. And again, you know, I got to make sure I say the right thing and look the right way and, and just do all the things to make sure that I, in every in every turn, am representing the culture and my people in the best light, I lost myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't checking in on me. I wasn't even aware of my own needs. Dr. Joy, what is your, uh, could you give us some tips maybe or some recommendations as to how people, as, as they do the necessary work, again, of liberating our people and on those front lines, these are people that are showing up at protests. These are people that are involved in the depths of organizing work and grassroots work and all the things that have got us to where we are. But how do these people take care of themselves in that process? Mm-hmm. That is so important. I have been really encouraged to see in activist spaces, activist spaces, much more conversation around mental health, right? Because it is, you know, when you're talking about like putting your lives on the line Mm -hmm. in very, very real ways, like there are lots of ways that that impacts you throughout the rest of your life, right? And so, you know, having conversations around Um, you know, therapists who work specifically with activist communities, I think is really important for somebody who really understands what that's like and the the need to take certain precautions and to try to, you know, make make certain that people are safe is really, really critical. And I also think making sure that you're having honest conversations with other activists about how you're feeling Mm. and the idea that it is a team thing, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean that, yes, we're all working for our collective good, but that doesn't mean that everybody has to be on at 
at the same time, right? And so the idea of a team is that there are some days where I maybe am on the bench and other people are stepping forward. And how do you kind of navigate that in your spaces so that there is space for people to kind of tend to themselves, you know, to run errands and do other things that they need to do so that they can continue to show up for the work? I mean, but I, I don't think we can minimize just how... Um, I mean, it is it's so important for people to be doing this work, but I also am just so aggravated and frustrated that people are still having to do this work, right? Mm. And so, you know, the idea, I mean, and Sister Toni Morrison says it so beautifully in her quote about, you know, the distractions of racism, right? Like, what other beautiful things could these people be birthing mm. if they weren't having to fight for our very livelihoods, yeah. right? You mm. know, and so, you know, I think that there's a part of that too that is, yes, People are really passionate and, you know, excited about doing this work, but it's really sad that they have to continue to do the work. I think that's an, an incredibly poignant uh, point you made, which is embracing the collective, right? Uh, I was having a, a fantastic and really therapeutic conversation with uh, the good sis Teslin Figaro about our shared experiences uh at Fox News and, and on these platforms where we show up as disruptors and, and liberators of the culture. And it was, you know, Tesla and I had never had that conversation, y'all. So it was therapeutic in the sense that we we could see each other's experiences reflected back um, through our conversation, right? And realizing, as you just said, Dr. Joy, it's not only on just me, right? Like I think sometimes, and I'm guilty of it, very much so, that I want to put everything on my own back, right and carry the weight of that in solitude and it's 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 not healthy uh, it's misguided it's a fool's errand i'm only one person all of us are we can't do all this work by ourselves y'all uh and so just recognizing the opportunity to lean on our fellow brothers and sisters in the space i think is key i mm -hmm. think that's key yeah. yeah you know ebony i think it's important to know that for a lot of us, like the idea of asking for help is not something that we do very easily, right? Especially because sometimes because of the toxic workspaces we've had to show up in, right? Like it's not been okay to ask for help or to admit that you didn't know something. And mm -hmm. so we take that into other areas of our lives. And so it can be really difficult to say, I don't know the answers to this, or I really need help in, in holding this. Um, sometimes that is, is difficult for people to do. And so that is also where you can see increases in things like anxiety and depression because because there is no way that one person can carry all of these things without asking for some support. I actually have a question for you, Dr. Joy, as a, mm -hmm. a black creative, someone who works in entertainment. Um, when we consider the statements that were recently made by Lakeith uh, Stanfield about his experience while filming Judas and the Black Messiah, you couple that with the experiences of people like uh, Carrie Washington, who mm. kind of echoed those sentiments when she was filming uh, Django Unchained, I believe it was. She said that mm -hmm. she was filming that and scandal, right? At the same time, Ebony. Yes. She said that it kind of stretched her to her 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 wits end. She was in intensive therapy afterward. Um, when you compound that and couple that with the 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 steep uphill climb that that black creatives and black artists already have in front of them working in in entertainment today, and as we move forward forward, excuse me, with um, kind of raising the awareness on mental health issues and needs in our black community. Have you noticed any spaces created specifically for black artists as this conversation advances and more people are saying, mm. hey, it's already hard out here to, 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 to work in this industry as a black artist. And I have to literally stretch myself emotionally all the way across the spectrum. Have you seen anything created specifically for black artists to kind of help them along their journey? Ooh, this is such a great question. So I think um, the good sister Shanti Das just recently with her organization, Silence the Shame, mm. just recently oh, yes. um, started a partnership with Sony Music, I believe, that is really all about like helping, I think, music artists specifically, um, you know, talk about like these conversations around mental health and how important it is to protect your mental health so that you can continue to share um, your your art with the world. Um, so I know that specifically is, is one space um, that is doing some of that work. I'm not aware of any other particular organization specifically for like creatives or artists. Well, we'll look into it, but, but I was going to, oh, no, go ahead, Dustin. No, no, that's, I was just going to say Shanti Das is incredible. So that's, I've, that's definitely going to be something I'm going to check into. I was just going to say Shanti Das is everything. And then also, you know, people don't really know it, uh, Dr. Joy, but Dustin's, uh, you know, he'd be spitting hot bars. So I believe he's <laughs> going to qualify for the Sony music program. So I'll write him a letter of recommendation and we're going to work on that. 
That's lit. <laughs> um, so I do, I do want to ask you this too uh, about pharmaceuticals, frankly, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that uh, many of us, in addition to therapy sessions, and 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 here we go. I, I'd love let's just break some of this down, Doctor Joy. Distinguish for us a, a psychologist and a psychiatrist, and where one might find themselves in need of one and or the other, and where pharmaceuticals can enter the space because. For me, I, I have to have my five milligrams of Celexa, okay? That is something that helps me in my work, uh, and I just want to speak publicly about it so people don't feel uh, shame and stigma around if that is something that supports you in your ability to have peace, uh, there should be no shame in that. So can you speak a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Great question, and I appreciate you sharing that, Ebony. Um so psychologists are people who usually have some kind of doctorate degree. So a PhD or PsyD usually um, and have gone to graduate school. Psychiatrists are people who have gone to medical school. And so they can actually write prescriptions and monitor you for medication. In some states, psychologists have those rights, but not many. So most psychologists that you meet with will likely mm-hmm. be doing some version of talk therapy or other kind of therapy with you. Mm-hmm. And some psychiatrists also do talk therapy, but that is likely less of their case load than talking with people about medication. Um, So the research has actually been consistent in that the best outcome for many people is a combination of both medication and therapy if it's needed, Mm -hmm. right? And so usually you won't see somebody who's kind of just taking medication and they've not ever done any kind of therapy. Now it could be that they have kind of graduated, so to speak, out of therapy, Mm -hmm. but usually at some point there is a a, a combination of both of those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so- you will, um, sometimes people will talk with their therapist, right? Like maybe you've been working with a therapist for some time and you have some symptoms that just are not being managed as well as you would like with just therapy alone. So people who are Mm -hmm. still really struggling um, with panic attacks or um, it's really difficult for you to get out of bed, you're just not finding joy in many things, those kinds of things, you might talk with your therapist about, hey, um, I think I may need medication. And that's where the psychiatrist or other prescribing uh, medical person would come in to do an evaluation and mm-hmm. to make some ass- assessment about whether they thought you needed medication or not. And I know this can be a really, really scary step for a lot of people because mm-hmm. when you add medication into the field, then it feels like, oh, something's really wrong, right? Like I think there's a lot of hesitance. Right. We know it takes some time for us to even just get to therapy. So right. the medication piece can really add a- another level. And so it's important for you to know that even if a psychiatrist or another co- another medical professional makes an assessment and offers you a prescription, it is always your choice Absolutely. about whether you take medication. But I do think for a lot of people, it is good to at least have the conversation, discuss any concerns you have about medication, and then, you know, just kind of have that open relationship with your prescribing person. For sure. Because thinking back, you know, again, going back to, you know, how, how many of us grew up, in addition to hearing about bad nerves, Everybody has some nerve pills, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Right? I got to take my yeah. nerve pills. Yeah. I got to take my yeah. nerve. I know I ain't the only one. Y'all don't leave me out here hanging. Okay? For sure, For sure right? And as a kid growing up, I didn't know what the... I, ner- I, I thought there was a bottle that said nerve pills. Nerve pills. I, right? Right? <laughs> I didn't know what the hell no nerve pills were. And now, as a full-functioning adult, I'm understanding it was probably some form of... um, What you call the joint? Uh. Help me out, Dr. Joy. Starts probably with, some kind of SSRI or anti-anxiety, antidepressive. Kind yeah, of exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Something to help with exactly some form of depression or uh, anxiety. Um, what's the the common one? Valium. Valium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so that's that's what the nerve pills were. Okay, now I'm starting to understand. See, and you know, acknowledging that even historically. There has been something that our community has availed itself to. We just, we didn't necessarily have the language, right, mm-hmm. um, to discuss it in this way. And I think when we do that, it, it becomes a lot less scary. Um, right. One of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, Dr. Joy, kind of what Dustin was saying, like, how do we show up for one another when the the burden gets so heavy? And, and again, so there's there's the activist part, which we've talked about. There's the creatives uh, that, that carry a particular uh you know, energy with what they do and and have to navigate that. But then there's just, again, going back to the chapter in Charlemagne's book, just by virtue of being fucking black, right? We have this generational trauma that 
you know, influences us just because, you know, it's almost on a genetic level. And, and can you speak to the generational trauma that many, many black Americans experience? Because, you know, I know I talked to my friends in the Jewish community and they are very unashamed of the fact that they navigate and deal with and acknowledge uh, the horrors of the Holocaust uh, as it relates to their experiences, current day Jewish people. I don't know that black Americans have been given the grace to do that same thing. Uh, can you speak a bit about how we can have those open dialogues, acknowledge that the blood, the very blood that courses through our veins is that of survivals of the most brute forms of historical trauma the world has ever seen and how that shows up for us today? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and you know, there has been lots of research that talks about like how trauma changes the brain structures, Mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, that that definitely is kind of passed on through generations. And so just like this conversation around like people needing nerve pills and us not knowing what that was, Mm -hmm. we do know that, you know, the ways that our people have survived in order for us to just be here, Mm -hmm. that, that required a lot, right? And a lot had to be stuffed down and put aside just so that people could, could, could continue to survive. And so when people are in survival mode, we have to be careful about judging them and judging how they survived. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, generations Mm -hmm. ago, when, um, you know, we had to sit with our legs crossed and we had to dress a certain way or somebody told you you can't do that so that you can be respected and be so you can get that job. There was a reason why that stuff existed previously. Mm-hmm. Now, when we look at our modern day, we do understand how that can be oppressive and not um, really help us thrive in the moment. But it came from somewhere. Right. And so when we talk about breaking down some of these generational traumas, it really is looking at what kinds of things have been passed through a history of trauma and how do we start to unpack some of that and make different decisions about our lives because we're not in the same place. And so, you know, the horrors of slavery, I mean, much of that is still with us. And Mm. and we know we live in a very um, racist kind of system that is set up against us just from the beginning, right? And so some of that we're still unpacking and unlearning and we are still fighting in a system, you know, that is in some ways operating just like it did hundreds of years ago. Yes. A hundred percent. Now, before we let you go, Dr. Joy, uh, Dustin and I opened up today's episode with a conversation, our respective takes on, uh, on the Oprah Winfrey, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry interview, right? (laughs) Now that, that interview was a whole lot, but I want to (laughs) specific, right. But I want to specifically ask you, I mean, she was very candid in her talks about suicide. Uh, suicidal mm-hmm. thoughts, right. um, severe trauma. I uh, believe the word she used was uh, unsurvivable, you know, mm-hmm. and just not wanting to be here anymore. That's some deep shit. Yeah. And in, I think anybody with two eyeballs paying attention knows that a lot of those feelings derived from the racial trauma she was experiencing in that uh, royal family. Mm-hmm. And also the mass media and the world's reaction to her as a biracial woman marrying into that family. Talk a little bit about if you were to be able to have a conversation with Megan right now, uh, what kind of feedback uh, and insight could would you provide her? Yeah, I would think I think I would first say um, that I'm really proud of her um, and really grateful that she shared, because when we share our stories, it unlocks the opportunity for other people to share and come forward as well. So we may not know it immediately, but there will be somebody who will hear her remarks or hear people talking about her remarks who may also be feeling suicidal and will recognize like, wow, I felt that same way and I maybe can reach out for help too. So I would, I would just, you know, express my gratitude for her sharing that. Um, and, and just really proud that she was able to make the choices that she can, that she could to kind of choose herself and her family, because that doesn't always happen. You know, we know, unfortunately, everybody doesn't have those same set of privileges that Mm -hmm. she did. And so, um, you know, just really glad that she was able to do what she did to kind of save herself and her family. I love it. I love it. D, you got anything else for Dr. Joy? No, no, no. And in fact, I don't have anything else for you, Ebony. I'm going to continue to keep Dr. Joy to myself. Oh, you know what? That's my joy. Okay. Okay. You know, you've been sitting on that line the whole (laughs) day of the interview. Right. 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 You know what? (laughs) 
I'm not going to do it with you today, Dustin. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Listen, Dr. Joy, we do. We just, Dustin and I both, we love you so much. We love what you do for the culture. Um, we pray that you are also taking care of yourself um, because that's important as yes. well, right? We want to shout out you and your fantastic therapy for Black Girls Podcast. Yes. Shout out to iHeart. And also the platform itself. When you go to therapyforblackgirls.com, which I am constantly sending all of my friends who you know live in various parts of the country, they're on the West Coast, they're up Northeast, they're down South. They're like, right. Ebony, I really want um, a Black female therapist or a Black male therapist. Help me out. And that platform, therapyforblackgirls.com, is the key. So we want to just thank you, sis, for everything that you do for the people, truly. Thank y'all so much. I really appreciate it. Fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Joy. Thank you guys so much for listening. And as always, we want to just ask you to follow us, subscribe, rate us. We do read every single one of your reviews. Shout out to to our jurors. We love y'all. And listen, tell your mama, tell your friends, tell everybody uh, to check out these episode notes too. This week, we are for sure going to put some resources in there. Shout out to Dr. Joy and her brilliant work. Therapy for black girls. uh, And and that goes for black men too. We're going to put in a link for therapy for black girls and for black men because everybody in the culture and beyond, we deserve the help that we need to do this work y'all yes. uh, listen holding court comes to you from uppity productions in association with dossie media presented by the black effect network from iHeartRadio. audio services provided by one of one Productions. shout out to Fela and co yes. check them out y'all at one of one productions.com as always y'all join us next week we're going to have court back in session we love y'all. In the meantime, listen, keep wearing your mask. I don't give a damn what the governors of Texas <laughs> now I'm talking about. Right. Okay. <laughs> stay, stay prayed up. You got to do that. Stay prayed up. Stay peaceful of mind. We love y'all. And Dustin, what you want the people to do? Read them terms and those conditions as well. Always. That's it. Uh-huh.